STEMI, the Stanford Emergency Medicine Innovation Podcast, where we explore the future of innovation within and around the field of emergency medicine. I'm Dr. Dan Imler, entrepreneur and faculty physician with Stanford University Department of Emergency Medicine. Each week, I sit down for a wide-ranging conversation with individuals pushing the boundaries of technology, research, education, systems, and design within emergency medicine. From the front lines of healthcare entrepreneurship to breakthroughs in the lab, we explore innovations in the science, practice, and art of creating precision emergency medicine that can transform healthcare for all. To stay current on the latest innovations and tips, please be sure to click subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please also send us your thoughts and questions to respond to in future episodes. And now, let's get started. So today I'm here with Rod Altman, who's the Managing Director at Wells Fargo's Healthcare Group, also an emergency medicine physician at Stanford and Kaiser, and has been in the VC and private equity space for a couple decades now. Thanks for uh, joining me, Rod. Thank you for having me, Dan. I'd, I'd love to hear when we start just how you got into this kind of VC private equity stuff coming out. Was it coming out of med school? What was it that got you into this? Well, um, it was uh, being a stalker. Um, I... I came out of residency at a pretty young age and practiced full time for the first 10 years of my career. But about seven years into it, um, I began to feel like I wanted to have uh, what I felt at the time was going to be a broader impact. And so um, I didn't know exactly what that would look like, um, but I knew that I wanted to have a role in what products and services got in the hands of patients and doctors. So not knowing exactly what that role would be, I, I went to business school at the University of Chicago while I was practicing full time. And then at the end of that, um, I became a stalker and I uh, called and interviewed with uh, anybody that would talk to me. And um, it took about a year until I finally landed a position with a venture capital firm. Okay. And what's that like? What's it like spanning both sides? Do you feel like you're pulled in two different directions? Do you feel like there's synergy between the two? What, what is that like being on both sides of that fence? Well, there are a lot of synergies. Um, it certainly is difficult to um, manage the demands of two careers. And I think one would be doing a disservice to patients if one showed up for emergency department shifts unprepared or with, with lacking in current knowledge. So in order to stay, um, in order to stay current, and in order also just to do compliance and all the sexual harassment training and, yeah. and uh, HIPAA training that we have to do, it really does take a lot of time. So it does take uh, a, a really a significant uh, commitment. Um, but I, I still practice for a lot of reasons. One is that um, being a physician truly enhances what I do as an investor. Um, two is that it's really a privilege to care for patients. There are a lot of people out there who watch what we do for a living on TV and think it's really cool. I don't know about you, but I never watch an emergency medicine TV uh, show. Drives me nuts. Uh, right, <laughs> right. I, I, if I'm gonna, if I'm going to spend that kind of time, may as well do it in the real world. And I, I think it really is. All kidding aside, it really is a privilege to. Uh, care for patients. We get insight into things that go on on, on the interpersonal level um, in a way that the average layperson never sees. And I think we understand that 
uh, people, whether at, at various ends of the socioeconomic spectrum, uh, deal with the same interpersonal issues, they deal with the same hygiene issues and health issues, um, no matter where they are in that spectrum. And, um, and that's really grounding and, and, as I said, truly a privilege to, uh, to care for people in that way. Now, in, you asked about sort of balancing. I think one of, the, one of the interesting things about it is that there are a lot of synergies. And I think one, um, I'm a better investor because of the work I do as a clinician. And in some ways, I'm a better clinician because of the work I've done as an investor. Let's take the latter first. So as, a, as an investor, I occasionally get to go deep into subjects um, that I really had no idea about as an emergency physician. That, those can be healthcare IT companies or administrative subjects, or, or sometimes they're clinical subjects. Um, for example, I may learn um, something about spinal stenosis and spinal surgery that may help me in my clinical practice. I may get to t in that process, I may get the opportunity to speak to key opinion later leaders in that field. So I may learn a lot um, from that interaction. And that, on many occasions, I feel like that's made me a better clinician. It also, I feel, has informed me and given me perspective on some of the administrative issues that, that come up. So. Um, I may feel sometimes, based on what I'm reading, um, I may have a slightly different perspective on um, what's going on with respect to ED volumes and how telemedicine may be impacting that. Because I'm reading things that are, um, that are germane to the business side, I'll get a, a, a perspective that will, will inform my thoughts on, on um, how we discuss things in emergency medicine. But more importantly, I think being a, an emergency physician has been greatly beneficial to me as an investor. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. So if you think about what we do as emergency doctors, uh, we make difficult resource allocation decisions with limited information uh, under a severe time constraint and a lot of pressure. Now, if you think of the front part of investing, um, the first part of making an investment is the decision to invest. And you could think of that as the decision to admit that patient with chest pain or the patient, the, the decision to do a lumbar puncture in that kid with a fever. Yep. You're essentially taking risk. Um, you're uh, often risk, you're, it's, it's someone else's risk, right? It's the patient's risk. So it's, it's, an, it's another party's money that I invest often. Um, you're trying to make a resource allocation decision or a risk decision based on limited information and limited time. So you have to decide how to allocate your time and efforts in terms of acquiring more data. And at what point you, it's not worth it to acquire more data. So we may decide like, what testing do we need on that patient with shortness of breath or chest pain? Um, and I may decide what elements I have to focus on in a due diligence process. So the ability to decide what information to get, how much time to spend getting that information, how much risk is acceptable, all of those things are very synergistic with the, uh, the decision making that we do 
in emergency medicine. There, um, uh, what I would say is that the back end of investing in venture capital is is very different. So whether it's private equity or venture capital, once you've made the investment, your role then becomes to work with these companies often for years, leveraging your network um, and trying to help these companies succeed. And it's a very sort of intimate long-term relationship that one gets with the management team and other board members. And um, that requires a very different skill set that is very different than what we use and learn in, in emergency medicine. However, the, as I said, the decision to invest in, and a lot of the work up to that point um, has a lot of similarities with um, the way we think as clinicians in emergency medicine. It's interesting. I've never really thought of it that way. Um, and almost in some sense, if you kind of think about value-based care, supposedly that upside that you feel as a VC for making those right choices, the doc should actually feel those same upsides in value-based care of having this come back towards them. That's right. But of course, in medicine, it's not true. It's not only a financial exactly. motivator, right? We, we yep. I think all emergency physicians, very few emergency physicians that I've met chose emergency medicine for financial reasons. So while I think the financial incentives are always important in what we do, most of the emergency medicine physicians I meet feel that their, their true motivation is to take the best care possible of the patient, right? Yep. And, and um, just, um, you know, it's that fiduciary responsibility that we have as physicians and as investors that is so similar. Yeah, I like that way of thinking about it. So kind of to tee off of that, so I've met a lot of people lately and have known them in the past who went through med school, got their MBA, but then never practiced. What do you think of that trajectory, which seems very different than yours, where you, even though you've become quite successful, continue to practice, even though I'm sure you have the space to fill your time primarily with your investment arm of things. How do you feel about those two different career trajectories? I think everybody, it's funny because I was just advising um, someone about this recently. Um, and it's a really, really hard decision to make. I think for everybody, that decision is going to be different. Um, for some, they should ask themselves what value in their long-term career plan is doing that residency going to confer? And for someone who envisions him or herself as solely an investor, um, doing a residency may not add significant value. And, or practicing for a few days you know, a month may not add that much value. In my case, I can tell you that it was a lot harder. Um, it, was a, it was a lot harder to make the transition later in my career. Uh, there are those that, that serendipitously end up in roles like the ones that I've had by making a transition later. But if one truly wants to go into banking or investing or even an operating role um, outside of healthcare services, it's much harder to make that transition the later you go building sort of the skill set needed to make uh, to operate in those other roles 
and having the networks required to operate in those other roles uh, is something that's best done earlier in one's career. Now, the question is how early, right? There are people who make the transition partway through med school. There are people who make it after med school, people who do it partway through residency or all the way through residency, um, or people who do it after a couple of years of practice. In my case, um, I did it after a significant number of years of practice. Um, and, and that was uh, challenging. Do you feel like if you do it early, you don't gain that differentiation um, and the value of being a physician in that space? Basically, you're just competing against every other MBA who never spent four years and $250,000, $500,000 worth of money? <laughs> well, I think there's some value as an investor to having spent some time in the hospital as a, as a medical student. Um, and I think it certainly differentiates you enough to get your foot in the door um, at, at a junior level investing position. So I think if it's like, I, like I've said earlier, I think if it's truly what one wants to do and if one's truly sure of that path, it makes sense to do it earlier. Um, but uh, again, there are for, for a lot of people who aren't sure or who want the option of, of practicing or the insurance policy of mm -hmm. having a medical practice when, when we go through a recession or a depression, there's value to completing a residency as well. So to shift kind of gears a little bit from the idea of a physician as an investor, um, there's a lot of physicians now who are taking more entrepreneurial roles, and you obviously get to see that side of things as well. So I'd love to hear from the people that you've seen be successful and the ones who fail, like what are some of those different things that you've seen as the physician transitions into an entrepreneurial role as well? Well, there are a few critical aspects and thinking of a, as a physician, is very different than thinking as a business person. And many of the, many of the differences are rooted in interpersonal um, skills. And many of those differences are also um, relating to risk and how we approach solutions to problems. Let's take the latter first. So, in terms of risk, business people think of solving, uh, if there's a problem that occurs, if you can fix that problem 80% of the time, you're doing pretty well in business. Yeah. And, and that's usually enough to deal with the outliers on a, on a basis of as they come up and move on to the next problem. Now, emergency physicians and all physicians for that matter, don't think that way. Um, when you present uh, a plan to deal with a problem in the emergency department, if you say, you know, this is gonna work for 80% of our chest pain cases, most emergency physicians, their hair would stand up and they go, well, wait, we've got so many chest pain cases and, and, um, and I can't send 20% of my chest pain ca cases home with MIs because they'll, you know, I won't have a, a practice for very long. So you're, to get oneself out of the mindset of, of um, sort of morbidity and mortality and into the mindset of, 
what's essential here? How do we solve problems for business processes or workflow processes that solve the problem most of the time and we can deal with the rest? What's enough? So that's a mindset that, um, that one has to get out of. Um, another sort of mindset is, and this goes more to the interpersonal, and, and I think we see many successful people in medicine do this in our own department. I think we have people like this who are, who are very good, is to look at things uh, positively. It took me admittedly a while, I think, to get to this point in my career. But when in, we're trained to approach things with skepticism and be curmudgeons, we're trained to tear apart a paper, uh, a research paper, and say why it can't work and why it won't work. Yeah. And while that skill set is extremely important as an investor, as an entrepreneur, it's also helpful, and as an investor as well, at times you have to flip and be ready to be positive and say why something can work or be open to discussing ideas that on their surface may not work. So, um, so that's a real mind shift that one needs to make. Um, and that involves, you know, I, I think when you, you may notice this, if you get a facilitator for a departmental project, an offsite, and that facilitator will say, okay, we're gonna throw ideas up on the board and I don't want anyone to kill any of those ideas until we've had a chance to see all the ideas and kind of go through them. And the emergency physicians in the crowd will invariably, the, the minute an idea is thrown up on the board, they won't wait for idea, the other ideas to go up and look at all of them. The, a lot of the physicians, not just emergency physicians, will start killing those ideas right off the, off the bat. Why something won't work, why it's crazy and why it's stupid. Um, and I, I think um, as a, as a uh, business person, not only do you have to be open to the ideas for the sake of generating ideas, but you have to be much more mindful of the impact of your words on the team that you're working with and how your posture um, can affect a team's willingness to speak up or generate future ideas. Um, so a lot of these uh, strategies are very different than, um, than one would have when one's reading a journal on an airplane uh, on the way to vacation by yourself, or when one is taking care of patients in a very time-limited uh, situation where you are a decision maker and you've got a team of residents and nurses who are essentially listening to your input and you have the final say. Yep. The last way that things are very different is um, when, you're, when, you're on the, um, when you're on a board of directors or in a meeting, um, it's really important. Um, and, and I think we don't really learn this as much in medical school, but a useful technique in meetings is to shut up and, and listen and not feel the need to speak. So a good technique is to wait until you hear what points others are making. And if someone made your point, be quiet and let the agenda move forward and let's get out of the meeting. 
Um, if someone didn't make your point, then make your point. Um, Basically leaving your ego at the door kind of idea of it. Yeah. Right. And I think that is not the way we operate as physicians a lot of the time. We're used to being captains and having people hang on our words and in, on a board of directors um, or in many business settings, um, decisions and discussions require a team approach where um, everybody's input is, is important and people bring different skill sets. And, um, and meetings can really drag on and get and grind if, if everybody feels the need to speak all the time. So it's useful to, uh, and, and you'll notice this, I'm sure, very, I've seen very few departmental meetings uh, in, in medicine where, in, which, in which the agenda moves as quickly as maybe it could. And if you st stand back and watch for how many new points are being made, there are often aren't that many new points. So we could all learn from that, I think, and learn to um, uh, cut back on the comments that we, that we make in, in meetings. Yeah. So maybe a, a little bit of tactical advice you could give to some people too. So let's say you're a physician um, and you've come up with what you think is just a great idea, right? The next big thing in whatever in emergency medicine. Um, if you were sitting there advising this physician about where to take that idea, maybe they've never you know, started a company before. Maybe they've never been involved. They've, you know, they've gone to medical school, but now they think they've found some insight. When you're talking to that person, what are, what are you saying to them? So the, the first thing that I say is, um, if you have no experience, find, uh, find people you trust and find partners who could help you take your idea to the next level. Ultimately, as physician entrepreneurs, um, what we want usually is not just financial gain, but we want to see our product or our service get out to the masses and get used. Um, and so to do that, um, you need financial partners and you need operating partners. So let's take the example for a moment of a medical device. If you had a new medical device, you would you want to find an engineer that you could partner with who could help you design the device uh, to, to fulfill your idea and also help you um, file the intellectual property and make sure that you protect it with patents. And then you would need a financial partner, someone who's an investor to help you fund the initial activities for the company that you'd be about to form. If you were talking about a software product, um, you would probably need a software engineer to partner with you. And you may or may not decide to file intellectual property on that um, software, but uh, you would certainly need uh, lawyers and investors to help you move things along. So the key thing to realize is if you have an idea um, you don't have to get it to the finish line all by yourself. It's very hard to do. And most physicians don't have the skill set. So approaching it with humility and being a good listener is really what's critical. Um, find, uh, find people whom you trust who will give you good advice. Learn to partner with uh, the right people. And have the humility to realize that you, know, you may not be the CEO by the time this thing gets public. 
Um, but what's important is that you retain some of the financial benefit from whatever you created um, and that the product or service gets in the hands of the people who are going to use it. And so if you can approach it that way um, and then pick the right partners, um, you can be a winner. So let's say this company has got to your conference room and you're evaluating them at Wells Fargo or trying to figure out if this is something that you guys want to put money behind. They've got their pre-seed round and a little bit of data. Um, what is it that you're looking for in these companies? Are you looking for them to become unicorns, billion dollar companies? Are you looking for specific things that this company has intellectual property, as you mentioned, what, what are you, what are you looking for? What, what's making it a VC level company for you and not just a, you know, a part-time thing that the, that someone's put together? Well, that's a great question, Dan. And I want to say that every investment firm, whether it's venture capital or private equity is slightly different and has a slightly different focus. And then within each firm, every investor really has different things that he or she likes or looks for in a, in a company. Sometimes some of which comes to gut feel as well. Um, at Wells Fargo in our group, Wells Fargo strategic capital and healthcare group, we are, um, we invest only in commercial stage companies. So we're generally looking for a management team that has, um, lived up to its own predictions and, and been able to fulfill the promises that it's made to its investors in addition to solid products or services. Um, there are firms, though, that obviously do earlier stage investing. There are firms that will only make an investment if they feel that the company has the, the potential to be a billion-dollar unicorn. But there are a lot of firms that have a, a more sort of capital efficient model where they say we only do we really target deals that are going to exit in the most likely in the 250 million and below range and we're going to find companies that we can put small amounts of money in and um but that are going to operate in a capital efficient way where they won't have to array uh, to raise large amounts of money and that way if we keep if they don't have to raise too much money and they exit at valuations that are in the $250 million range and below, we could still make the same kind of returns as you would with a unicorn that raises a lot of money at higher valuations. Yep. So there, there are many, many different flavors. I think what's important as, a, as an investor is the ability, oh, sorry, as an entrepreneur is the ability to network and to find the right investor who will be able to, um, you know, for, for whom your company will be a fit. Um, I think if you, a lot of it, again, comes to humility and not thinking you know everything and realizing that every interaction that you have can and hopefully will lead to one or two or three other interactions where eventually um, you, you will find the investor who is a fit for your, um, your company. Yep. And the people that you've seen be successful to make it to that level, um, that have been physicians or, or what, whatnot. Um, a lot of the times I feel like the physicians who want to start a company or who are building some product tend to do it from a society, social good for the world benefit rather than cold blooded capitalism. What's your take on those different mindsets when it comes to actually building a company that's going to make money and succeed? Well, 
if you're raising money, whether it's from angels or venture capitalists or private equity investors, um, their job is to make money. Make no mistake about it. I mean, there are some funds that have altruistic motives that are um, double bottom line funds or funds that are um, that are based out of philanthropic organizations. But for the most part, um, investors' job is to make money for their limited partners, so their investments, and um, and they're not going to do a deal otherwise. I think what's important as an entrepreneur is your ability to recognize that and to be able to um, lead your investor down the path, to put your arm around the investor and say, let me show you how we together are going to make money. Let me show you the vision that we have for this company and how it's going to make money. Now, in our group within Wells Fargo, we inherently are our team of four in the, on the, in the healthcare group of Wells Fargo Strategic Capital. We all want to do good. We all we want to fund fund things that help patients and help the healthcare system be better. Um, but we're in it to make money, yeah. and uh, and so um, to the extent that uh, I, I think it's really important to be able to alter your message so that you are speaking the language of your investor. Find out what appeals to your investor and what your investor needs to hear um, and alter your message. So you may be an altruist and want your device to be used in every pediatric case um, of a certain disease in, in North America. And that's fine as long as you, if you're approaching a financially driven investor that you are able to articulate a story that shows financial returns to that investor. And you can still have your altruistic mission in mind as well. So I think to the extent that one can communicate um, effectively that way, and, and that requires, again, something that some physicians are very good at, um, it requires an ability to listen and really change your message based on who you're talking to. You can't go out with a megaphone and just hit the play button for every investor pitch that you do. You have to really get a sense, do your research before the meeting, find out what that firm likes, talk to other people who have met with that firm, um, find out a little bit about who you're talking to, show up prepared, and then change your message accordingly. So you're a board member at Cirrus Medical, um, who, as I understand it, is doing sort of AI for planning for radiation oncology. Um, I feel like nowadays I hear like sort of AI for AI for nursemaid's elbow reduction, AI for everything. Since you have this kind of inside look at this, I'd love to hear where you think AI is truly going to make a difference. I mean, we've been doing at Stanford, they've been having AI for medicine since the sixties with short and all sorts of people. Um, I'd love to hear what you think is truly going to make a difference and make money in the world. I'm not sure. Um, first of all, I think, We'll certainly see great companies with AI technologies. I think I think right now a lot of people use the word AI to describe basic software, and um, and so you know the real question is what is true AI and is it you know where is there true machine learning? 
and, and iterative learning, not just learning on a data set and being programmed, but iterative learning over time. Uh, and I can think of some really smart people with whom I've spoken. Um, Ram Dursetti is one um, who's a, a, a machine learning expert within our own department at Stanford and whom I've used in due diligence and been very helpful. I can think of people like that who have tremendous insight and, and even they think that the term is being somewhat overused. Um, now, on the positive end, um, I do think there will be great opportunities. So we're seeing a lot of activity in radiology. Um, and um, one could see how at some point it would make sense to have algorithms um, that are drawing physicians' attention to certain findings on, on be it CT scans or plant x-rays, and also pre-populating um, pre uh, reports. However, I think that initially, at least in the short term, AI is gonna be used in decision support and not I don't think AI is going to be replacing us as physicians in the time span of most of our careers. So no medical license form yet. Not yet. Maybe uh, maybe for uh, for your kids. Uh, you know they'll compete with your kids for jobs, but uh, not for us. Oh, thank God. Um, so we're recording this mid-May, um, in the middle of this COVID outbreak. We're still yeah. sheltering in place. Um, how has this affected your world in terms of investment? It seems like there's kind of things that could be very positive in terms of investments, um, despite the human problems that are going on and quite negative from the economic standpoint. Yeah, so there are many questions that we have right now. One of the questions is um, how, do we, how do we value companies right now? Um, so generally speaking, private company valuations lag the public markets by six to 12 months um, in most recessions. Right now, most, most of us feel that the public markets are not reflective of what valuations should be. The public markets are pricing in a lot of optimism. Um, they're pricing in a very rapid recovery. They're pricing in a, uh, the, the likely, they're pricing in the, a very low likelihood of any subsequent shutdowns due to COVID outbreaks. Um, and they're pricing in the likelihood that we'll have a vaccine or at least substantial treatments in the short term. Yep. Uh, I think we in healthcare may be a little bit more skeptical of those possibilities, um, knowing what we know. And so, Getting back to your question, it's hard to price private company assets right now because we don't really have good comparables. We often look to the public markets for comparables, but those valuations don't feel right right now. The other thing that we, the way we determine price in not so much in PE-backed companies, but in venture-backed companies, is we try to envision how much dilution, how much additional capital is gonna to have to go into the company 
until we get to an exit, an exit being either a sale or an acquisition. Well, we don't really have a sense for when, how deep this recession is going to be or whether there are going to be additional COVID outbreaks. Um, So we don't really know how much cash a company is going to take to get to cash flow positive or to get to an exit. And let me give you a more tangible example. Let's take the example of a company that would be selling a, a guidance system for surgery for orthopedic or spine surgery. Let's say that that company was selling the product for a million dollars for the hardware, and then there'd be some software and consumable products that one would use for each surgery. Well, imagine hospitals now with the challenges that they have financially, um, deciding to buy um, that kind of a product, a million dollar expenditure. The wealthy hospitals might do that. Um, The less wealthy hospitals might be a little more hesitant to do that. a company that is that is cash flow negative, so a company that's not profitable, that would be in that situation, how much cash would they need to last until they exit, right? We wouldn't know because we don't know when the hospitals are gonna start purchasing again so that this company will be able to increase its revenues and sell enough of those million dollar devices so that, um, so that it would, it would uh, not need more capital. If the company were to need more capital, more money, um, the amount of ownership that we would have coming in now, if the company needs more money in in a year, our ownership levels in that company would go down. And so we wouldn't know exactly how to price that asset now. So the two issues to come back to your question are, how do we price the company's value at exit? Well, we don't really know because the public markets are out of whack. And then what, what would our ownership be at exit? Like, how do we price, how do we price it based on our own ownership levels? And that's really reflective of how much cash goes into the company. We don't really know how much cash a lot of companies need right now because the markets really um, haven't settled out. We have no idea how long this is going to last and also whether there are going to be subsequent outbreaks, when we'll get a vaccine, when we'll get treatment. So the way it's affecting us, is the and other investors I would venture to say as well is that we're all acting with a lot of caution right now and most investors are the first priority is to work on their own companies in which they've already invested and make sure those companies have enough cash to get them through um, this period the next step is and that may involve raising additional capital it may involve unfortunately doing layoffs um, but ultimately if you want companies to survive they have to make it all the way through to the uh, Um, to the other side of this pandemic. The next issue is when we're going to start to invest and be active. And I think investors will start to be more active when they get a handle on, um, when we get a better handle on when, whether there are gonna be significant significant, um, outbreaks again, whether we're gonna have effective treatments and whether we're going to have a vaccine. Yeah. So that uncertainty basically means the amount of new deals is probably going to stay pretty low for a period of time. I think so. Now, at the very at the very early stage, 
it might not be so bad um, because at the very early stage, um, you know, the, the, uh, your pre-commercial and the amount of capital you may need may not be impacted by um, the realities of what's going on, on on the ground, right? The only thing that might happen is if it was a biotech company or a medical device company, the clinical trials might be slower. But if it's a, a clinical trial, if it's a, excuse me, a uh, healthcare services company or healthcare IT company in which you plan to be commercial early, that might have more of an impact. Yeah. Um, but I think mid and later stage companies and certainly mature companies in private equity, um, those companies are very, very hard to price right now. Yep. I can see how that early stage there's so much uncertainty just baseline that the additional uncertainty just doesn't add that much change to the idea to invest. That's a great way to think about it. Yep. Well, Rod, I really appreciate you taking the time. Stay healthy and uh, thanks so much for joining us. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be asked. Thank you. This interview is intended to explore the process of innovation and does not in any way indicate endorsement by Stanford or by our physicians of companies or products being featured.